Have you guys ever tried to prepare for something and then you realized you were very uh, unprepared? I went on a camping trip one time. I have like this, this notorious ability to go on the absolute worst camping trips. And I don't mean that in like this kind of light manner. I mean it as in I love camping and I like to be outdoors. In fact, if I could live outdoors, I, I would. Uh, it would be kind of difficult, but I, I especially love long camping trips. And when I talk camping, I, I'm sorry for those of you who are campers, but I don't mean camping in a car. I like to hike in. I like to backpack in to where you truly have no access to the outside world. So I remember it was uh, 20, uh, 2015, yeah, December 2015, I asked my, my parents and my grandparents for a tent and a bunch of camping equipment because I wanted to go on my first kind of solo backpacking trip. Now I'd never been before and I had recruited a friend, his name is Jeremy, he's from Texas and I'm from Texas and we thought, you know, two good old Texas boys would probably handle the Smoky Mountains. And so we, we coordinated and, and the only time we had was Christmas break before uh, college picked back up and so we said, okay, January, here's our window and so we're going to go. And as we start to hike in, we pulled off on the side of the road, and we left our cars on the side of the road because we couldn't figure out where we wanted to park, and we just wanted to hike in, into the mountains, not really knowing where we were going to go, but we figured that's what camping was. And so as we hike in, it starts to snow. And as I'm sitting there realizing that it's snowing, I realize that my sleeping bag is for 45 degree weather at minimum. Then I also realize that we have nothing to start a fire with. We, we assumed that we'd find kindling and, and things like that. I've never actually started a fire in the wilderness before. And all of a sudden, this sense of being ill-prepared starts to set in. But we kept going, because we're from Texas and we're stubborn. And we hiked in three miles into the Smoky Mountains, not telling anyone where we were going, not giving any coordinates. And it was Jeremy, myself, and his two dogs, two large dogs, in one tent, and we find this little creek bed, and we think, okay, this is fantastic, we'll set up here, and, and we had a, a little slight dispute on whether or not we should set up our tents on the, on the kind of the rocky ground that was really close to the water, it was like this Instagram perfect picture, it just looked beautiful, and I said, ah, I think we should, I think we should set up our camp a little bit higher up, slightly higher up, and so we set up our, our tent, he, I won the argument, and we set up, and and before we knew it, it was dark and we couldn't get a fire going. We burnt everything we could find. We burnt oatmeal packets. We burnt undergarments. We, we used everything imaginable to try to get a fire going, and we could not. And so we went to sleep defeated. And we, we climbed into my small little uh, backpacking tent, and we froze. We just, it was miserable. It was the most miserable night's sleep I ever had. But when we woke up the next morning we realized that the Lord had blessed our setting up a tent spot because if we had set up in the other spot, we would have been in water. We would have woken up in water because the water had risen up to where we were thinking of camping. It was a terrible camping experience. We, we tried the next day to get fire going. We couldn't. And, but, you know, because we're stubborn, we stayed an extra night because we just said, well, there's no way we can leave. It's a three-mile hike out. We just, let's, let's try it one more time. One more time. You ever been ill-prepared for something? And then it just causes you to, to really question whether or not you should be there. 
right? It makes you want to go back, doesn't it? It makes you long for the good old days. You might be wondering why we're journeying through the book of Numbers. You might be wondering, uh, in, in a time like this, when the seasons start to pick up, and it's Thanksgiving and then it's Christmas, why would we pick the book that is largely the most unread book in the Bible? I mean, it's, it's about numbers, right? It's got these censuses, and, um, and, and so if you, this is your first time joining us, we're glad you're here. If you're tuning in online, this is your first time visiting, we're glad that you're tuning in. You might be wondering, why would we pick Numbers? Well, Numbers is a story about a people that God tried to prepare, but they go kicking and screaming because as they find out what the wilderness really looks like, they long for the good old days. And so we're actually going to be covering three chapters that cover how God seeks to prepare us and how he sought to prepare Israel. But before we can begin there, let us just have a word of prayer. Father, we pause as we're about to enter your word and Lord, we realize that when we, show up at, when we show up to church on Sabbath, sometimes we, we come ill-prepared to, to listen to what it is that you want to say to us. Lord, sometimes we come allowing that argument through the midweek to, to control our, our minds. Sometimes we come uh, with, with really the wrong intentions. And so, Lord, we're asking that whatever it is, Whatever reason we came here today, that you would straighten us out so that we would leave here knowing that it was simply to come and meet you, to come and hear your words. Lord, we're also pausing because we're thinking of the other churches in our communities that are gathering to hear your word as well. Lord, we think of the Chastity Church, we think of the Atlanta North Church, we think of the Marietta Church and, and the Duluth Church, and we ask that you, would, that you would speak profoundly there as well, because it truly is a blessing to not only be a, a single church in Alpharetta, to, but to be a part of a, a larger family of faith. And so, Lord, we, we know that you're a God that, that speaks, and so we ask for you to speak there as well. For we're praying this all in the name of Jesus. Let everyone say, Amen. We asked this question last time, as we wrapped up, because the book of Numbers largely should not be called Numbers. In fact, that's not the Hebrew title for the book of Numbers. The Hebrew title is The Lord Spoke. And so we talked about how Numbers chapter 1, even though it's the census, is largely about God speaking to a community. And, and we see three aspects of the community. We see that they are a vulnerable community. A census has to be made for their military. They need to know how weak they truly are. Are. But they're also a valued community because as they're numbering, it's name by name. Even though it's creating one single military, it's made up of individuals and God knows every individual. In fact, we saw that Jesus says God knows every hair on our head. And so they're a valuable community. And then lastly, we talked about how they are a privileged community because God speaks to them. And so we want to continue picking up in Numbers. And so if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 3. Numbers chapter 3. Because in Numbers 3, we see God do something different. And we actually get to see a second census. Numbers chapter 3. We're going to be picking up in verse 1. It says, Now these are the records of the generations of Aaron and Moses at the time when the Lord spoke with Moses on Mount Sinai. These then are the names of the sons of Aaron, Nadab, the firstborn, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. These are the names of the sons of Aaron, the anointed priests, whom he ordained to serve as priests. But Nadab and Abihu died before the Lord when they offered strange fire before the Lord in the wilderness of Sinai. 
and they had no children. So Eleazar and Ithamar served as priests in the lifetime of their father Aaron. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near and set them before Aaron, the priest, that they may serve him. They shall perform the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do the service of the tabernacle. They shall also keep all the furnishings of the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. You shall thus give the Levites to Aaron and to his sons. They are wholly given to him from among the sons of Israel. So you shall appoint Aaron and his sons that they may keep their priesthood. But the layman who comes near shall be put to death. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel, instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel. So the Levites shall be mine, for all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel. From man to beast they shall be mine. I am the Lord. Isn't Numbers just fantastic? I mean, man, just what a, what a riveting read. Amen? I mean, it's just, man, wow. Just, man, I just, it was, it was like the, every word was just the name of Jesus and then the name of Jesus. And I mean, it just makes so much sense, right? I mean, when we sit down to read Numbers, sometimes we look at it in the lens of this is ancient, this is archaic, there, there's, there's, this, is, this was for that time. But in reality, what, what God is doing is he has Israel. He's just brought Israel out of slavery. They've, they've been delivered from Egypt 400 years of oppression, 400 years of slavery, 400 years of being told what to do, 400 years of not having freedom. So the time that you wake up is, is, is set for you. The time that you're able to get off work is set for you. Every day is set for you. You're not in control of your own life. You're, you're a slave for 400 years years. That's generation after generation after generation. And so God brings them up out of slavery. He's, he's freed them. And then he brings them to this mountain, Mount Sinai. And from Exodus chapter 19 up until this point, so the rest of Exodus, all of Leviticus, and most of the first 10 chapters of Numbers, Israel is at Mount Sinai. They're camping around Mount Sinai. And the reason for this is because God is trying to prepare a community. His focus is in preparing a community. Now, we read the Bible sometimes through our individual lens. We live in a very individualistic age. In fact, some sociologists call our age an age of expressive individualism, where we seek to assert who we truly are. That's why there's been this uptick in books that, that try to help you figure out who you truly are. Instead of allowing a community to help you find who you actually are, you can find it within yourself. Well, but we know that inherently that's not true, because if I told you that I was a six foot seven basketball player, you, you would probably laugh at me. You would... <laughs> Everyone aside from Barbara would laugh at me, right? So I can't tell you who I am because I need somebody to fact check it for me. I need a community. I need, we, we do this all the time. We know what our appearance looks like based off of a mirror. And so a community functions as a mirror and God is taking such interest in developing a community. So he's already numbered a military and here he comes and he's going to number the Levites. Now this is important because the camp of Israel was set up like this. You have the tabernacle, 
where God would, would dwell. That was his throne. That's where his presence would be. And it was set up in the middle of the camp. And then you have to the south, you have Aaron and Moses and the sons of Aaron. Then on the, or no, sorry, that's the east. And then to the south, you have the Kohathites, which is a Levitical tribe. Then you have to the west, you have the Gershonites. And then you have the Merarites to the north. And then around the Levites, you have the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, really, the, the remaining tribes of Israel. And this was, I mean, there's supreme intentionality in how this is set up. This is not just some, oh, yeah, randomly, this is how we're going we're gonna to set up. You're going to set up tent over here. And I mean, I remember when we did Pathfinders, when we had the camp out here. And it was just like, hey, how many tents can we fit on the lawn? You know, and we, and, and we made sure that it looked in order. We didn't just go about and say, okay, we're going to have this one sideways, and then this one's going to be upside down, and then, no, we're, we were setting them up to where they looked uniform, with intentionality. And here is Israel, they're in the wilderness, and God is not just saying, yeah, you ragtag bunch of individuals, do your best. No, he's giving them intentional commands to help them function, to know how to exist as a community. So, Numbers chapter 3. Could you imagine having to serve a, a, a nation of over 600,000 individuals, over 700,000 individuals, over 800,000 individuals, and you get a team of just two other people? Could you imagine the amount of strain that would place on you? If you I mean, you're, you're literally having to function as a priest for thousands of individuals, and it's you and two others? That's, I mean, it's Aaron and his sons. But it can't be Nadab and Abihu because they, they kind of went their own way. And, and so there's a lesson in that in the book of Leviticus. So he has Ithamar and Eliezer. And so God says, hey, I'm going to give you the tribe of Levi. I'm going to give you the Levites. And they're going to function as ministers. And the Levites are to be a reminder. Why are the Levites given? See, uh, God tells Moses in verse 13, or sorry, verse 12. Now behold, I have taken the Levites from among the sons of Israel instead of every firstborn, the first issue of the womb among the sons of Israel, so the Levites shall be mine. And then he tells us why. For all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel. From man to beast they shall be mine. I am the Lord. The Levites had a very specific point. The Levites were to be a perpetual reminder of surrender and substitution. That's what, that's what Israel would have seen them as. The reason why it's the Levites is it's, it's not their sons. It's not their firstborn. Instead of it being their firstborn, it's the Levites. And so as an Israelite, you would see a Levite ministering in the sanctuary, ministering in the tabernacle, and you would know the reason for that is because they, they were surrendered by God and they were substituted on behalf of your children. And so you would immediately have this understanding of those who are ministering on your behalf point to surrender and substitution. That's at the very center of the Israelite community. So what is at the very center of the way of the Israelite life is surrender and substitution. Interesting, because as Christians, we're known as individuals of radical other-centered love. We, we look at other people and we say, yeah, we'll, st we'll stand in your place. We'll, I have $5 in my pocket. Oh, you need $5? Yeah, I'll give you my $5. I'll, I'll take your, your, your poverty. I'll give you my riches. 
That's what Christianity has been known for, for millennia, of standing in the place, substituting and surrendering for others, for the betterment of others. And so the Levites are an example of this. In fact, they were, they were ransomed because God stepped in and delivered Israel out of slavery. That's the whole reason. Is that you see them and you're reminded of the way that God has delivered. Then that deliverance was costly. There was, there was the death of firstborns in Egypt. But it goes even a, a step further. See, God wants Israel to not function the same way that surrounding nations would function when it comes to religion. See, religion has this, this concept of, like, you might say, oh, I'm religious. I would not say that I'm religious, personally. I would not say, if somebody asked me if I was religious, I would tell them no. And the reason for that is because I'm a Christian. And Christianity is different than religion. Religion says, if you do all of these things, good will come. You will achieve blessing. You will achieve eternal life. Christianity says something radically different. Christianity says, there's nothing that you can do to achieve it. In fact, it's a gift. It's a very costly gift. Religion says, if you do this, here is your reward. Christianity says, hey, here's your, here's your gift because of what has already been done. And so, really, there are three competing worldviews that Numbers addresses in, uh, in Numbers 3, Numbers 4, and Numbers 5. It is this. Religion says, earn your life. That's what religion says. Secular society says, create your life. Go and, and find out who you are, and you can make who you want to be, a reality. But Jesus says, my life for your life. That's Christianity. A gift. A free gift given. And so God is, is after he's numbered the children of Israel and he's, and he's uh, come up with this military, now he's numbering these Levites, and that's pretty much all of Numbers 3 and Numbers 4. And the whole purpose is to keep in front of Israel this notion of surrender and substitution. That's the primary purpose of why they're to, not only are they ministering on behalf of Israel, but, but they are a symbol of redemption in and of themselves. But that doesn't just correlate to the Old Testament. For the Old Testament, Israel functions as an Old Testament church. This is what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So in the Old Testament, you have the Levites who are chosen to function as representatives, to function as ministers. In the New Testament, Peter, the apostle, says, we are the priests. We are a type of Levite. We are a chosen race. We are to be examples of substitution and surrender for others. But then God continues to build on this because he, in Numbers chapter 4, he gives these responsibilities to all of the sons of Levi. There are, there are predominantly three tribes or three leading families in the Levitical tribe. You have the Kohathites, you have the Gershonites, and you have the Merorites. Now, those are, I had to practice saying all that because it's, it's like you say that ten times fast, right? Um, but the Kohathites were given the largest section, and their primary responsibility was to work in the sanctuary, and they were given the pieces of the sanctuary, like the Ark of the Covenant. They were given the, the, the table of showbread. They were given the seven-branch candlestick. They were given the uh, altar of incense. Then you have the Gershonites, and they're given all the fabric, so the curtains on each side. 
except for the, the veil that separates the holy place from the most holy place. And then you have the Merorites, and they carry the skeletal structure, the tent pegs and the poles. And so you see there is this, there's this supreme intentionality that God has for in how Israel should conduct itself. But then there's this chapter, there's, or there's this uh, section of five verses that calls into question who this God is. And it's found in Numbers 4, verse 15 through 20. It says, when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary. See, Aaron and his son, Eliezer and Ithamar, they were the ones who would go in and actually touch the most sacred components of the sanctuary. And so they would take the Ark of the Covenant and they would wrap it with the veil. And then they would take that Ark of the Covenant wrapped in the veil and they would hand it over to the Kohathites. And then they would go and they would, they would wrap up the table of showbread or they would wrap up the seven-branch candlestick and then they would hand it to the Kohathites. So the Kohathites aren't the ones doing the wrapping. It's Aaron and his two sons. And then they're handing it over to the Kohathites and then here come the Gershonites and they're taking down the rest of the, of the, the curtains, right? And then here come the Merorites and they're taking the rest of the skeletal structure. Everyone has a purpose. Everyone has a role. But then notice, speaking of the Kohathites in verse 15... When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the holy objects and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set out, after the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, so that they will not touch the holy objects and die. These are the things in the tent of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. The responsibility of Eliezer, the sons of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light and the fragrant incense and the continual grain of offering and the anointing oil. The responsibility of all the tabernacle and of all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and said to Aaron, saying, Do not let the tribe of the families of the Kohathites be cut off from among the Levites, but do this to them that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy objects. This sounds so contrary to the, to the character of God that we see in the Bible, right? And it's what causes us to stumble when we're reading through the Old Testament. Because sometimes it looks like the God of the Old Testament is different from the God of the New Testament. Sometimes when we, when we say, oh yeah, the Bible, it's, it's about God, and, and the best verse is 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, where it says, God is love. And then we, that we use that verse to filter everything in the Bible through. And then we get in the Old Testament, and we get a passage, we get into a passage like this, and we say, okay, Question, God. You gave the Kohathites their responsibility to carry the pieces of the sanctuary. But if they touch a piece of the sanctuary that's not covered, they're going to die. Interesting. How, how does that fit into a God of, of being a God of love? Right? That should, that should be our question. We should be thinking critically. We shouldn't just say, okay, God, yeah, it's in the Word, so, I mean, obviously it's, it's, you know, it's holy because it's part of your Bible. Like, we should dig for these treasures because in these chapters, Numbers 3, Numbers 4, Numbers 5, 6, 7, the whole book of Numbers, there are these treasures. And sometimes we leave them unfound because we aren't willing to, to really stress over how does this align with God as love? I was having a conversation with somebody this past week, and we were talking about numbers, and we created this journaling guide where each day you have, have a section to read, and it goes through the, the journaling method that I use, which is head, heart, hand. What does it say to your head? What does it say to your heart? What does it say to your hand? Right? How do you respond to what you've read? And we were talking about it, and 
We were talking about how in, in some of these chapters that seem very kind of just uh, dull and boring, because let, let's be honest, right? Sometimes you read the Bible and it starts to put you to sleep because you're just kind of like, okay, that's just a long list of names. Let's get to the action, right? But even in these passages, there are these, there are these, these archaeological truths that you kind of have to dig for that are just so beautiful that when placed next to the picture of what Jesus has come to do, it just, it just makes it that much more vast, that much more beautiful. It's like, it's like, imagine you went on a journey and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm familiar with this road, but there's always this side road that I've never journeyed through. And so you're just like, yeah, I'm just going to go for it. And then all of a sudden you step out and it's like, there's this beautiful field filled with flowers. If you had never had the courage to go down that side road, you would have never known that that field was there. Or maybe you're out on a walk and, and you see this other path and you're like, you know, I'm, I'm going to try it this one time. I have some time and so I'm, I'm yeah, I think I'm going to go for it. And you go for it and you stumble upon a waterfall, right? And now it becomes your spot that you go to to process stresses of life and, and, and et cetera, right? You would never get there if you didn't actually take the time to go there, if you didn't work for it. And so I was having this conversation, and we were talking about how in these chapters contain these beautiful truths that we often just leave, leave under, under the surface of, of just some words. And they were sharing how it reminded them of their dad when their dad was in school, and their dad was given a class assignment. And the class assignment was this like five-page uh, paper that was uh, full of instructions, like very meticulous instructions. And so, you know, students immediately start going off and working on it, right? And they're, they're trying to go instruction by instruction. And the, and the dad had, had been reading the instructions. And as he got to, like, the second to last page, he, he realized that there was a line that says, if you've read this far, sign your name and go and submit the assignment. Everyone else is over here, like, working and, and really trying to, you know, accomplish the task of, of using the instructions and putting together whatever it was that they were being told by the teacher to put together. And yet... Really, the assignment was, if you do the work of just reading the entire document, you can just sign your name and turn it in. But you would have never known had you not continued on. And sometimes when we come to the Bible, we think, okay, that's all that there is. It's just some historical things. And in this passage in particular, it calls into question the very character of God. God, why would you have the Kohathites be in charge of carrying these, these pieces of your tabernacle, and yet if they touch them on accident, they will die? Why would you have that? Well, I think our concept of God's love is somewhat watered down by our understanding of what Hollywood proposes as love. Sometimes we, we allow the world's definition of love to influence what our understanding of God's word when it says that he is a God of love is. See, Albert Einstein grasped something about this very concept. He says the most beautiful experience, that's the language of love, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead. And his eyes are dimmed. It was the experience of mystery, even if mixed with fear, that engendered religion. And then he goes on to say, a knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate, our perceptions of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty, which only in their most primitive forms are accessible to our minds. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitutes true religiosity. Albert Einstein says there's something about the mystery just something that's mysterious, that causes us to, to stand back and have supreme reverence for it. 
Almost to stand back and say, we'll never be able to reach the final conclusion. We'll never be able to say, yes, I have enough. Yes, I grasp it well enough. Yes, I know that. Because there's always something more. Because there's a mysterious aspect to that. And in in this passage, we see God sets a line. And it's a very mysterious line. Because it seems like, God, why would you do that if you are a God of love? But when you dig into how God places authority in the Bible, you see something amazing. See, why would, he, why would he set such a hard line to where if they overstepped? Whose job was it to, to wrap up the pieces? It was Aaron and his sons. And then whose job was it to carry the pieces of the, of the most holy place and the tabernacle, the, the holy place? It was the Kohathites. And whose job was it to bring in the rest of the, the curtains? It was the Gershonites. And whose job was it to bring in the tent pegs? It was the Merorites. And so if a Merorite was trying to do the job of a Gershonite, doesn't that bring in dysfunction? What if a Gershonite starts to try to do the job of a Kohathite? Doesn't that bring in some dysfunction? And so God was trying to show Israel that no service is too small for God, that everyone has a work, that you should not overstep and try to do it all yourself. There are these allotments that you need each and every one. Well, think of the church. Think of the body of Christ. Paul uses the analogy where the church is like a body, and our bodies are made of so many amazing things. In fact, we tend to think that the pinky finger is like the least important finger. And yet, if you've ever tried to flex your hand with just one finger, you can't do it without the pinky. The pinky is what is attached to the the muscle in your hand. And so if you go rock climbing, it's actually your pinky that is helping you the most. It's not your thumb. It's not even your, pointing, your pointer finger. Tommy Caldwell, one of the best rock climbers in the world, he's missing a finger. But it's not his pinky. And so he's still an elite level climber. And yet we look at it and it's like, it's the pinky. Come on, I mean, let's just lose it, right? It's just what, even, what good purpose is it? Oh, it's got supreme importance. Every aspect of God's body has importance. Everyone has a role. No service for God is too small. Whether that's carrying the tent pegs, carrying the the instruments in the sanctuary, it does not matter. Everyone has a role. And so if you're a teacher, you can serve God. If you're a doctor, you can serve God. If you're a janitor, you can serve God. No service is too small for God. Paul, actually writing, uh, telling the story of numbers in 1 Corinthians 10, says this as his conclusion. Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, when God was setting up his Old Testament community, he gave everyone a responsibility. Everyone. Not, not the most eloquent of speech, not the strongest, not, not just these individuals. Everyone had a job. And he didn't want them overstepping those bounds. Because if you overstep, then you start to think, I can do everything my own, and then pride starts to set in. In fact, that's what God fears the most, is a prideful community. Numbers chapter 5. Numbers chapter 5 is where we find uh, really God's, God's true heart in establishing a community. And we read it for our, for our scripture. It's basically this. There are some cleanliness laws. In fact, he says that if, if somebody is, has leprosy or a discharge or there's a body that has, or somebody has passed away and their body is still within the camp, get it out. And you might think, okay, that's good health practice, right? We've, we've had quite the year where we've, you know, finally become very aware of other people's health practices. 
right? We're almost on guard from other people's health practices. Because we know that if somebody is sick, it can infect an entire community. Well, think about where God goes from disease. Where does he go next? He goes to sin. Because if someone is not willing to prioritize relationships, that's what sin is. Sin is anti-love. Sin is breaking the commandments of God. And Paul says uh, the, keeping the commandments of God is the fulfillment of love. Or love is fulfilling the Ten Commandments. And so sin is really a broken relationship. And so if somebody's willing to cherish sin, think about what that does to a community. It will destroy it. We know this. Think, think, have you ever had a really, really close-knit friend group? Like a really, I mean, just, just think about it, right? Or perhaps your family is really, really close to where you, you're kind of like friends, but you, you just say, oh, yeah, you know, we're family, we're family, right? And then it comes Thanksgiving. Or then something happens, and two members of your friend group start to be at odds with one another, and it disrupts the entire friendship community. Or a family member and another family member start to get angry at one another, and it throws tension in the to- in the, into the entire family unit. We know this. And so God is trying to show Israel that, look, not only with disease, not only can disease come in and ravage a community, but sin can come in and decimate a community. Sin can come in and kill a community. And so what are we to do? As Christians, what are we to do? Israel was supposed to be wise. This is, we, we read this last time, Deuteronomy 4, verse 6 through 8. See, I have taught you statutes and judgments, just as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do thus in the land where you are entering to possess it. So keep and do them, for that is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who will hear all these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as is the Lord our God whenever we call on him? God has just ransomed Israel. He's just brought Israel out of slavery. There's no way he wants them to not actually function as a close-knit community. He wants them to reflect his image. He wants them to love one another. In fact, that's why it's so grievous in this chapter, in chapter 5, Because if you sin against someone and you're not willing to go and say that you're sorry and you're not willing to acknowledge that you've actually sinned against God, I mean, that's what it says. It says that uh, in verse 7, Numbers 5, verse 7, then he shall confess his sins which he has committed. When you wrong somebody else, you sin against God. Why? Because they're made in the image of God. They are made in the image of God. And so when you wrong them, when you treat them poorly, you're, you're sinning against God because he is their child. Or, I'm sorry, they are his child. I was like, that does not sound well. They are his children. And so you're sinning against God. So you have to go in. And really, if you think about it, when we offer apologies, you know if it's a true apology when that person has gone and acknowledged that they wronged God first before coming. Because sometimes we try to appease bad relationships with a sense of pride because we don't like how everyone else feels about it because it's kind of destroyed our image in society. But God cares so much about our relationships that he actually, in, in the New Testament, says this. Talking about the church, talking about this conflict, Matthew 18, he says, at first you're to go to them and try to seek out reconciliation. And then if they won't listen, you bring in maybe some other eyewitness accounts 
And then if they won't listen, you take them to the church. And then he says this, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. He says, let them be out of the church. If they're not willing to reconcile, let them be out of the church. Why? Because they will kill the church. They'll kill the church. I can't tell you how many times I've seen churches that will refuse to accept the fact that, they, that they've died, and that's simply because they've let too many people hurt too many other people. The church is not meant to be that. The church is to be a different organism. The church is to be a place where we are so, so loving to one another that other people are like, what is going on there? I want to be a part of that. That's the power of the local church. It's not the song service. It's not even the preaching. It's the love that we have for one another. It's not the children's programs. Those are great, but it's the love that we have for one another. This is why Paul says, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We gather together not for programs. We gather together because we are a community where everyone has a role, everyone has a responsibility, and we're called to gather together because there's no way that we can accomplish this on our own. In fact, if you as a Christian feel like you can go on growing in your relationship with Christ without a church, without being a part of a local church, that's very prideful if you think about it. It's very prideful. Because God did not set that up. His, he's so community-focused. You cannot read the Bible without thinking that God cares about communities. In fact, he's the greatest community builder. And this is why. This is why he cares about the local church and his community. He says this, so that the manifold wisdom of God might, be, might now be made known through the what? Through the church. Not through the pastor, not through the preacher, not through the evangelist, not through the, the children's story, although that was a great children's story. Not through the children's programs, right? Not, not, even, not through the various ministries, no, through the church. Through the people, the manifold wisdom of God is to be declared to the world. Through the people. Jesus said this. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. And so Numbers 3, 4, and 5 is really this preparation of establishing a community. And God is setting these hard boundaries that sometimes we look at and we say, God, how could you be a God of love? if you're going to set that hard of a boundary. But in reality, a community, once you're a community, you're going to guard what you have as a community. And so when you have a, a, a loving community, you're not going to allow something to come into it that jeopardizes that love. You, you just won't. Now, does that mean that the church should not be a hospital for the broken? No. Jesus himself said he did not come to save the righteous. He came to save the sick. And so the church should be welcoming to everyone the church, the church we don't, it doesn't matter what your story is. If you want to come, come. That's the church. But if you're not willing to submit to what God talks about in reconciliation and esteeming one another, and you have your own agenda, then you're bringing sin into the camp. And the Bible talks very harshly against that because it will kill the community. It'll kill it. That's Numbers 3, 4, and 5, is God's care for a community. And he's preparing his people to be a community because he knows that if they're not unified, if they're not working together, they will not be able to enter the promised land. In fact, we're going to see a story about some spies. 
where 10 of them did not want to work with two, and it killed the camp. And so the question for us is, is there someone that we may have offended, or is there somebody that we may have hurt, or is there somebody that may have hurt us that maybe doesn't know that they've hurt us? Are we as a church functioning as a church where we're seeking reconciliation with others, or are we allowing broken relationships to foster here? Because God is calling us to love one another and to show the manifold wisdom of God to our community. And so is there someone that, that we've hurt or has hurt us that might not know it? God is telling us that we need to, we need to seek reconciliation. There's a quote that, um, that has often been, been a quote that I've, I've visited several times because he's an individual that, that I've, I, I hold in very high regard. His name is Martin Luther King. And he, he said this, We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. If we can't learn to live together, we will perish. It's just, it's just a matter of fact, because we, we know that sin breaks relationships. It'll, it'll kill every community that it gets inside of. It will. And so how can we function as a community? God tells us very simply, in one sentence, this is how. We love one another. We love one another. Which means that we prioritize that relationship above the argument. It means we prioritize the relationship above the offense. It means that we prioritize the relationship. Why? Because love is you first, me second, always. That's biblical love. We must learn to live together as brothers or perish together as fools. Let us pray. Father, we want to thank you for these chapters, numbers 3, 4, and 5. Lord, they're, they're hard chapters, to be honest, because we live in, in 2020. And numbers 3, 4, and 5 were, were a while back. But Lord, we see still the same things, which is you care about your community. Lord, you, you ransomed Israel out of Egypt and you brought them to Mount Sinai, and you wanted them to know that they needed to work together, that they needed to be a healthy community, not a sick community, not a, not a community that fights inwardly, even though that's what they end up becoming. But Lord, you wanted them to be a community that loved one another, where everyone had a place, everyone had a responsibility, and everyone was valued. And so Lord, may you show us as a church is there someone that we've, that we've sinned against? Is there somebody that has sinned against us that might not know it? That we've allowed this relationship to, to kind of break? And Lord, give us the strength to, to pursue reconciliation. Give us the strength to, to humble ourselves and, and to say sorry if we've messed up. Give us the strength to ask for forgiveness. Because Lord, you want us to be a community. And we're living in such a divided time. So may we be able to be that example of your manifold wisdom to all the world. For we're praying this in the name of Jesus. And let everyone say, Amen. Amen.